Hi, I'm Trini. And I'm Astrid. And welcome to It's a Continent, the podcast that widens access to African history. We're also the co-authors of the book by the same name. You can find out more information about us on itsacontinent.com. So we're here to challenge the common misconception that Africa is a country and appreciate the identity of each nation. And through each episode, we'll be exploring key historical moments which have shaped the continent. Hello and welcome to another episode of It's a Continent, the last one of the season. Last one of the season. We actually made it through. We did it, Joe. We did it. (laughs) We did it. We did it. Yeah, no, honestly, I think, yeah, it's been been good because actually this one we started at the, I think this is the, I can't remember one when we've done like half the previous year and then come through a new year, but still carrying on. But I think that's why we normally start with like a new season with a new year, but we carried on. We've completed it. We are completing we it today. How yes. are we doing? It is what it is. <laughs> Honestly, I have no words for this week. I, I don't even know how to describe it. It's, it's happening, but... Yeah, we're surviving. We're carrying yeah. on. Yeah. So this week, would you like to know where we're going? You probably know this, obviously, by the fact that it says it on the Yeah, <laughs> It'll probably say it on the title of this. I don't know why we always say that, like, though it's going to be a huge surprise. It'll be like... You know what? I don't know, it's never occurred to me that people just read the title and know where we are I know, yeah. I, just, <laughs> I just thought about it and I was like, but it says it on the title. But anyways, just in case you clicked on this by accident and wondering why these two women are having a bit of a natter, um what we do so we are going to south africa well well i wish history. i was but uh... <laughs> yeah I was gonna say. um we're visiting south africa through history we're going back actually this is a revisit and we will be looking at today the life of chief albert john mvumbi lutuli the first african to be awarded the nobel peace prize he was recognised with this honour in 1960 for his non-violent struggle against apartheid. It's just very interesting because this man was given the first, was the first African to be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, but no shade, but I hadn't actually heard of him before. I know. This is why we do this. <laughs> There's just so much more to South African history than certain person. <laughs> yeah, no, honestly, because when I was reading and I was like, I have never I feel terrible but I have never heard of this guy's name but yeah, yeah we will be getting familiar with Albert Lutuli um through this episode so we'll look at how he became one of the most prominent political figures in South Africa's history but before we get into that um here's a little bit of we go back to beginning we start from day dot so Lutuli was born in southern Rhodesia, which today is modern-day Zimbabwe, in 1898. He was the youngest of three children, and sadly, his family experienced significant loss early on. His parents lost their second child, Lutuli's brother, and then his father passed away when Lutuli was only six months old. This left his mother to raise the children. And after spending some time in Zimbabwe, the family uh, made the decision to move back to South Africa in 1908. Age 10, Lutuli was sent to live with his uncle Martin, who was chief of Gratville and co-founder of the South African Native National Congress. 
This organization later became the African National Congress, the ANC, which played a pivotal role in the fight against apartheid. And the organization is also kind of a key to Albert's story as well. Whilst living with his uncle Martin exposed Albert to his Zulu culture, tradition, and South Africa's politics. He was also sent to school by his mother. And in his autobiography, Let My People Go, which I definitely recommend. That is a cracking title. Absolutely. <laughs> I know, like, not just based on the title, but honestly, I've been reading, as I was doing research for this, reading this on my Kindle. Yes, it's available on Kindle. This is not an ad, by the way. Sorry, I'm, I'm sounding like such a walking advert. It's not an ad. But yeah, I definitely recommend getting his autobiography and reading through it. It is, yeah, it's incredible just hearing it from um, through his own words. In his autobiography, he recognised his mother's efforts in ensuring he received an education. He reflects on how his mother was a very successful vegetable gardener. However, in addition to her work on her fields, the lack of ready cash in the family and the lack of capital to work the whole land basically forced her to walk regularly five to six miles to the nearest European settlement in order to earn a few shillings washing clothes. She honestly just sounds like such an incredible woman and she was so just determined to make sure that her boys were brought up well and had an education. So yeah, shout out to the mums. As he grew up, Lutuli developed a keen interest in teaching and pursued a career in education. He completed his teacher training, specialising in teaching Zulu and music at Adams College, and would also train future teachers. Around this time, he also met his future wife, Nukukanya Bengu, in 1925. They tied the knot two years later and went on to have seven children. The family were devout Christians, and Lutuli was very much about giving everyone in the family a voice. His eldest daughter recalled how he would never impose his status as family head upon us. Everybody had an equal opportunity to talk and no one was considered too young to have his views respected. I think that element of Christianity and faith is something, as we tell more of his story, that you see kind of come through. Um, It plays a really important role in his life and in his story. Definitely. And I love the fact that, like, even within his own family, he modelled that vision of how he wanted society to be yeah um so that's really Mm. great example there from uh, Lutuli. The political situation saw apartheid well and truly take hold. Apartheid was a system of racial segregation and discrimination that was enforced in South Africa from 1948 to 1994 and resulted in the oppression of non-white South Africans across various areas including education, healthcare and politics. Some examples of legislations introduced at the time included things like the 1892 Franchise and Ballot Act, which limited Africans' ability to vote based on financial and educational qualifications, the 1949 Prohibition of Mixed Marriages Act, and the 1950 Immorality Act, which made marriage and sexual relations between white people and other racial groups illegal. All of these laws were designed to maintain and reinforce white supremacy. Back in Groutville, its residents encouraged Lutuli to run for the position of chief in the upcoming elections, a role previously held by his uncle Martin in the 1920s. Initially, Lutuli was hesitant to apply for the job for several reasons. Firstly, 
it meant leaving his beloved teaching career. Secondly, he felt he lacked sufficient experience to govern. Oh, so, yeah, so, literally. <laughs> we are the same person, Chini, because I thought the same thing when I read. <laughs> nice that he felt that way. It's a shame that mm, not everybody feels. Not that everybody. <laughs> not guys. We are not all meant. Let's all accept. Not all of. We are not all born to it's be. Not, sometimes it's, it's sometimes it's not our calling. That you just have to accept it. Sometimes your only calling is to lead your own life and to lead yeah. yourself. You know, what I mean? line manage yourself. <laughs> yeah, line manage yourself. <laughs> let's let's really advocating for putting that on the CV. I line yeah. manage myself. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Let's yeah. not be trying to take care let's of the whole community. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> own it, people. Another reason that Lutuli was hesitant to apply for the job was because his family would experience financial hardship since the chief's salary was only 20% of what he earned as a teacher. Eventually, Lutuli agreed to put himself in the running and was elected chief of Groutville in 1936. In his autobiography, he describes the multifaceted nature of the chief's role, including being an administrator overseeing the daily affairs of 5,000 people living on 10,000 acres, acting as a magistrate for civil issues, and serving as the chief of police responsible for maintaining order in his territory. As chief, he also had to enforce apartheid laws and policies, such as the Land Acts, which introduced policies like forcing Africans to sell excess cattle at reduced rates to white farmers. Lutuli remained committed to governing with integrity. This was against a prevalent narrative at the time, which suggested that African poverty was due to their supposed inefficient agricultural techniques rather than inadequate land distribution. He did his best to ensure fair and just leadership despite these challenges. I think one of the things that I really felt for him in his story is the fact that he was so, he had this, he wanted to do the right thing and you could really sense that, but also he was in a really challenging situation where he's being put in positions whereby he's doing things that he also disagrees with or having to implement things that he always also disagrees Mm. with. So you're sort of being forced into hypocrisy in a sense, Mm. but he really made the effort to try and do things the right way and make sure that it was fair. But um, he wasn't a, you know, as chief, he wasn't a- It's a difficult situation. Yeah. And another thing I wanted to share is like, he also mentions how some chiefs, they were sort of in place there as like, I think we've used this word before, but like puppets, or they would use that to, you know, they would accept bribes, that kind of thing. So, you know, there was a lot of challenges. And also when you're seeing that you're earning like 20% of what you previously earned, there's a yeah. lot of temptation there. But to really have as tried his best to maintain his integrity and lead in that way was, um, I think, yeah, really commendable. In 1945, Lutuli joined the African National Congress, the ANC, contributing to its efforts to end apartheid. The organization's approach at the time, which Lutuli embraced, involved taking non-violent measures to deliver change. In May 1951, he became the president of the NATO branch of the ANC, while continuing to serve as chief of Gratville. The government viewed his dual roles as a threat and demanded that he choose one. Leaving him, basically, they gave him that option, but they basically removed the role as chief from him, basically. But despite this setback, Lutuli continued to work with the ANC and was elected as its president a year later in 1952. 
The unpaid position made it necessary for his wife, Nukokanya, to be the sole family breadwinner, and she also supported the NC by leading its women's league. With the situation worsening and the ANC Youth League, of which Nelson Mandela was a member of, pushing for more forceful strategies. This approach was ultimately adopted, resulting in several strikes and boycotts taking place. During his term, one of the noteworthy actions taken by the ANC and other similar organisations was the defiance campaign launched on the 26th of June 1952. The date became a day of national protest and mourning. The defiance campaign was a major mobilisation effort against apartheid law, which saw people from different racial backgrounds come together in non-violent protest. The campaign led to the imprisonment of more than 8,000 people for various reasons, including breaking curfew, which was imposed on Africans, and entering areas designated for a specific race. The police resorted to violence, firing at the protesters and their supporters, and the campaign significantly boosted the presence of the ANC, with its members increasing from 25,000 in 1951 to around 100,000 by 1953. Once again, this placed Lutuli under the spotlight, and the government retaliated by confining him to Groutville and its surrounding districts, preventing him from attending political events, giving speeches, and visiting ANC branches. They accused him of promoting hostility between the European and non-European inhabitants. Which to me is just wild. How can, you, how can you see that as hostility when you have a whole segregation system in place? Say they literally are upholding that law themselves and creating that law. So law themselves, yeah. It's like one man is not responsible for. Is not, yeah. It just I don't know where they got that from, but hey, that was how they they saw it at the time. During his leadership, another significant milestone was the creation of the Freedom Charter, which Lutuli viewed as a South African version of the Declaration of Human Rights. The Charter laid out fundamental rights for all South Africans, including the right to own land, vote, hold political office, and have full economic and educational rights. But how could Lutuli achieve these things despite the government restrictions on his movements? Well, he relied on the help of his Indian friends, as they weren't monitored as closely as Africans. With their support, he could host and attend meetings in their home. You know, the typical sort of online discourse around allyship. But actually, this is a really good example. Example, um, yeah. <laughs> you don't a, want to start. But no, it definitely is a good example. Really good example. Um, it's just a shame that not all skin folk are kin folk. I'm looking at certain members of parliament, but, you know, it's, it's fine. Mm. Mm. Oh, another thing, actually, I was going to say around the help of his Indian friends is quite interesting that they made that decision to help him as well. Because one thing that the British Empire kind of left as a, a bit of a remnant was around how they used Indian people as a sort of intermediary between uh, black people and white people, kind of do a bit mm. of their colonial bidding. And this is seen in places like Eastern Africa. Um, and also, I, I guess, in some degree, it could be said to have occurred in South Africa as well. Uh, but it's just good that it's quite interesting as well that Latuli managed to gather the support of this group of people. Yeah, and he had support also like across the world. So like the likes yeah. of Martin Luther King Jr. supported him, like they were around the same time. Mm. And so the, he did have mm. support from various 
grooves and I think it's um it's just good to see that you know they were also putting themselves at risk but they still by having that support he was able to carry on doing the work that was that desperately needed to be done definitely so what was the response of the government to the freedom charter well they decided to charge Lutuli and 155 other activists with high treason by 1961, all those charged were found not guilty and were acquitted. Lutuli was again limited to Groutville and prevented from engaging in the ANC. Although Lutuli continued to reiterate the ANC's non-violent approach to ending apartheid, other members of the organisation, like Nelson Mandela, began to question the effectiveness of this approach. Yeah, I think you can really see that, you know, they started off with kind of thinking, okay, we raise it we do strikes okay we've attempted strikes and boycotts nothing is changing there's definitely also probably like a at this point a sense of frustration as nothing is really changing the situation is sort of is seems to just be getting worse is there anything more we can you know we can do for there to kind of be a change uh in mm-hmm. in the way of thinking or to challenge this way of thinking and this could be seen through the Sharpeville massacre So this took place in March 1960, and it marked a significant turning point. At a time when decolonization was happening in various African nations, rather than embracing it, the South African government concentrated on enshrining laws that maintained apartheid. The massacre occurred in the town of Sharpeville and saw a group of more than 10,000 protesters gathered to oppose these laws, but the authorities reacted by opening fire resulting in the death of 69 unarmed protesters and more than 180 people injured. There's always a heavy-handed response to these kind of uh, protests. Yeah. It's just to remind them where the power lies, you know, because to make an example and say, well, you might think that the rest of you know, the other Africans are gaining independence, but it's clearly a message from this government saying that that's yeah. not going to be the case. Yeah, it's definitely not going to yeah happen here. And they had apartheid for at least another 30 years. And it must have been a struggle, especially at the time for those who, you know, you are seeing other nations around you going through decolonization yeah. and your your situation just seems to be getting worse and there doesn't seem to be a point of, I don't want to think resolution is definitely not the point of this call, <laughs> but it, there doesn't seem to be a, a kind of light at the end of all of this like yeah it doesn't seem to be um escapable in a sense mm. and as conditions in south africa continue to deteriorate nelson mandela and other anc group members began advocating for a different strategy one that involved armed resistance the nc convened to discuss this new approach and while lutuli remained against it he understood the reasoning behind it they ultimately agreed to establish a separate military wing of the ANC, known as MK. MK is the abbreviation because I was going to struggle with the actual Look, pronunciation. No, we don't want yeah. to. Uh, we- so, yes. <laughs> but it basically means kind of spear of the nation. The plan was for the ANC to maintain its nonviolent stance while MK pursued more aggressive tactics. MK mobilised, launching attacks and declaring that they would no longer only rely on non-violent resistance in response to the government's policies of force, suppression and violence. 
literally empathized with the decision to turn to violence, acknowledging that after years of non-violent resistance, people could no longer see a way forward except through fighting. And in a sense, he couldn't blame them either. So I think this is a point that you find in his story, as I said, like, is again, similar to what he experienced as chief, whereby you're wanting to support your community, but then you're also having to deal with the apartheid system. Here you've got, you know, he's trying to deliver change, but in a way that is authentic and aligned to his faith and how he thinks it should be done, but also realizing that they've been doing this for so long in this way and nothing is changing. And also taking on that feeling of, you know, people are frustrated. So what do we do? To be honest, I don't see another way they could have done it in a sense than having these this other branch as well that supported a, I don't want to say for support attacks, but, you know, was able to give them a sense of we can do something to defend ourselves. As Martin Luther King uh, Jr. said, a, a riot is a language of the unheard. So, you know, this is the next stage. If the government is not listening to you or giving into your or listening to your demands, then this is the only way, if you don't have any power, then this is the only thing that you can do. We've seen mm. that strikes are a very popular concept right now. Um, yeah, honestly, I am now actually having, I've got a calendar to tell me who is striking on which days because you can't keep up. I'm all for it, but I just need to keep it, keep it in my we diary. We just need to know what's going on. Going um, on, yeah. But, you know, in the in the, the case of the striking workers, they can withhold their labour because that is their power. But yeah what what can you do if you don't have any power um this is the only thing that you can do so um and besides even when you are non-violent then the government are violent towards you so towards you yeah what, what, and then they're like oh well you know we, we want peaceful protests but they're not peaceful mm-hmm. <laughs> so it basically just puts you in this like in the middle and you're like what yeah so i do think it was in a sense if they, they won't be listened to, as you said, yeah, it was necessary for them to move in this direction. And in 1962, the government expanded the definition of sabotage to include labour strikes. There we go. Mm-hmm. And political graffiti. Imagine political graffiti. If found guilty of sabotage, individuals could receive a death sentence for political graffiti. Mm. For going on strike, for withholding your labour. Honestly. Some of these, like, there were so many, I know we've captured some of the acts and kind of policies, but just, like, how how was this okay? Mm-hmm. Obviously, it wasn't okay, but it was just able... It was legal, right? So this is the thing. This is the problem with using legality as a way of saying, oh, well, it must have been okay because it was legal. A lot of things, mm. yeah. once put in law, technically it was legal, but surely this is just repressing human rights. The apartheid system and its laws further isolated Lutuli. He was basically under house arrest, which prevented him from doing his work with the ANC. And the ANC itself also had to reconsider how it maintained its presence. Also, Lutuli was not doing well health-wise, as he'd suffered from a heart attack and a stroke years earlier, and he was partially blind and hard of hearing. I do think as well that like his, I just have this feeling of just like thinking about just how long he'd kept going for and the situation his family were in. You know, he had seven children and he's doing this work which doesn't really pay. And 
gosh, I, I don't know. I just have this sense of like exhaustion, but also wanting to keep the fight and maintaining that fight and constantly wanting to be like, no, we still have to keep going. I guess it's when you're in those, um, just the level of um, determination and perseverance is for me just incredible. On July the 21st, 1967, Lutuli passed away after being struck by a train. Whilst the official inquest suggested that his poor eyesight and hearing were to blame, those close to him doubted this explanation, especially as the government was known to use violent tactics against opposition figures. That's quite a scary thought because Lutuli had already won the Nobel Peace Prize at this point. Yeah, and I'm just wondering if there was a sense of like, because the number of times honestly I just I can recall reading that he was like okay his movements are limited to Grouchville he's you know he can't go anywhere where's he going yeah he's he can't go anywhere but again he was still making noise and he was still you know in their faces and he still had a presence but to but he was still limited do you see what I mean like there was he was still limited but they were still threatened by him even through his limitations they were still threatened by him which yeah, which for me is just wild. Well, you guys can have all of these acts and policies or whatever, but this man is going to find a way to be heard and push through regardless of that. Quite sad to see because it's quite similar to Steve Biko's story and how his mm. life was also cut short uh, yeah. through the work of, of you know, the, the apartheid government claiming that, oh, it was just another cause of death which is really highly suspicious here i mean Mm -hmm. this person has suffered you know a heart attack stroke is not doing well health wise the story is not making sense no it doesn't it just doesn't it doesn't add up and i think this is the challenge with a lot of these um leaders who had such a were so prominent um in kind of like the history of their nations that there's no explanation, right? Like, no, there's all it's all in secret, and nobody really knows the truth. And yeah, or but can actually truly believe that the truth that we have been told of the version of it is actually what occurred yeah. because there were things going on. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Well, it's a bit of a bit of a downer, no, but we're we're. <laughs> Is it, but I do think he was still a. It's definitely a worthwhile person to. It wasn't. We need to sell. No, we know. We need to celebrate him. We need to celebrate the work of Latuli and mm-hmm. you know highlight what he's done and how actually maybe we kind of think about how apartheid was not a one man struggle. I, I'm not like throwing shade, but it's just because no, that's no, the way that understand. it's presented. Yeah. Sometimes, but there were just multiple people that were involved in this in this fight. Definitely. And I think there was a um quote someone, I can't remember when I was reading, they were like, Lutuli was Mandela before Mandela. And you can see mm. they worked, you know, they worked they together. Were clo- they worked together, yeah. they were closely involved. They had their own journeys into it and stuff, but they yeah, they worked together. And so I do think that he did support. He definitely supported in... Oh, 100%. Because Mandela, thankfully, was able to live to kind of see the end of apartheid, mm-hmm. um, unlike uh, many others who who died before him in the process. But yeah, that is us done. The end of season six. Yes. Yay. End of season six. Oh, my. Every time we say it, it's like the end of the season. I'm like, wow, we've really been doing this for... <laughs> 
<laughs> we've really been out here, you know. We've really been out here. <laughs> the pandemic was a while ago now. <laughs> so yeah it really was it really was honestly thank you so much for listening as always keep yes. sharing liking sending us recommendations please do because we're going to start planning season seven which is wild but yes we do love all your suggestions so do do keep sending it um i also just wanted to shout out to the schools that have reached out to us and people that have reached out to us um yes. if you are interested or want to kind of collaborate with us please do reach out and email us or reach out to us on our social medias yeah please do get in contact because we do love talking about and bringing to light these stories of incredible people who really we should have known about and now i know and then i can say yeah so you can follow us on twitter at it's a continent and also on instagram at it's a continent pod our website is it's a continent.com and you can also contact us and through uh, through that as well so yeah we look forward to hearing from you all thank you for listening and thank you all for your support this season thank you for listening we'll see you guys bye bye